Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Group E World Cup Preview Podcast here on the World Football Index. I am your host, Austin Miller, and I'll be joined on this show by experts from all four of the nations here in Group E, Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland, and Costa Rica, to take you through those four teams, all of their strengths and weaknesses, some players to watch out for, and everything you need to know about Group E. Because of time limitations and time zones and and all of that good stuff, all four of the experts join me separately on this podcast, but you'll still get all of the great information that you've gotten from all of the World Football Index World Cup preview podcasts. So let's get right into it. And so to start this podcast off, we're joined by Tim Stillman, who's going to chat Brazil with me. Tim, very excited to have you on the show. Welcome back to the World Football Index. I know I'm personally very excited to talk Brazil because it's a nation that I actually know. And I've talked to so many experts about their nations that they know. But this is one that I know as well. So we're in for a good discussion, I think. Indeed, indeed. Pleasure to be on. So, Tim, I think with Brazil, it all starts with Cheech, the manager who Mm. came in after the the failure in the 2016 Copa America Centenario. Dunga got his marching orders and probably not a moment too soon. And since then, Brazil have just been world beaters. They've only conceded five times under Cheech. They've only lost once, and that was a meaningless friendly against Argentina, played in Australia. What are the changes, if any, that Cheech has made? But basically, what has he done to turn this around for Brazil? Because there was a point when we thought Brazil might legitimately struggle to make the World Cup. And now they head to the World Cup as one of the favorites. And a lot of it is simply because Cheech has come in. Yeah, absolutely. I I think the first thing he did was he just got this group organized. And, you know, you alluded to um, the fact that they just don't concede goals. And, you know, they're they're back four, very experienced back four. You know, you're looking at Thiago Silva coming back into the team. He's nearly 34. Miranda's 33. Dani Alves is 34. Um, so, you know, after this tournament, they've got a bit of a rebuilding job to do there. But for the moment, they've just got this super experienced, solid defence. And, you know, when you've got players like Casemiro um, kind of in front, that, you know, they just block up the middle of the pitch so, so well. They're so hard to get through. And, you know, they're not always 100% fluent 100% of the time. Um, but I think Marcelo um, gave an interview this week. He was at a press conference and he used the phrase... We've learned how to suffer. Um, so they, they can really withstand periods of pressure because their defence is so good. Um, I think also Cheech, you know, he's he's renowned as a great orator. Um, and that's one of the reasons he's kind of reluctant, I think, to go abroad because he doesn't speak any other languages. And I think he realises that his real power as a coach is, you know, in his speech. And I think he's just got them believing again, um, which, you know, under Dunga, Dunga completely the opposite you know very surly quite uninspiring character who thrives on confrontation and I think Cheech has just completely switched that up the the third thing that's happened to be honest he was slightly lucky in terms of the fact that one of Brazil's biggest problems for about a decade was that they just didn't have a centre forward worthy of the name Um, and you know when he came in Gabriel Jesus was ready to take that number nine role and so that's not a problem he's had that perhaps his predecessors have had and what Gabriel Jesus has done also is he's been able to reduce the dependence on Neymar because under Dunga, Brazil really was, um, you know, 10 blokes and Neymar, basically. But it's it's much more of a unit now. And, and Jesus, you know, with his movement as well as his, you know, his ability to score, he's really kind of taken a bit of the focus off of Neymar and, and allowed him to flourish in his own right. So Ch- Cheech has just changed some quite 
big things, but some very simple things as well. And Tim, one of the things that I think Cheech has done so well is that mm. Neymar question is I think he works mm. really well with Neymar. And, and we've seen, you know, Neymar is Neymar. And, and that means that mm. he's sometimes tough to deal with for a lot of teammates and for a lot of others. But Cheech went in and right away, once he got the job, he sat down with Neymar and kind of laid out his expectations, laid out what he yep. wanted from Neymar. And that's something that I think often flies under the radar because Neymar has been complicated with Brazil. 2014 was an interesting turn of events. His time under mm. Duke as you said, didn't go very well. And they put so much into Neymar. But Cheech did a really good job of taking that out in a way that didn't insult Neymar. You know, he stripped yep. him of the captaincy, but didn't give it to somebody else. He gave it to yeah. everybody else. And there's so many little things like that. Cheech is just a really, really good man manager. And this Brazil team needed somebody like that, particularly because of their reliance on Neymar. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was that was a very cute political move. You know, rotate it. I, I'm, I'm not really sure if I know he says he rotates the captaincy to promote the, the idea of shared leadership, which is one of those things in, in theory, I think sounds absolutely fine. In practice, I'm not sure, you know, Gabriel Jesus captaining the team for a friendly against Croatia. I'm, I'm not convinced that suddenly makes him leadership material or that that does anything for him um, long term. But it, it was a very cute political move because, I mean, it, it was quite a stunning decision from Dunga really to take it off Thiago Silva and give it to Neymar completely unnecessarily. Neymar already had perfectly enough to be getting on with with this team without, and he's not really a natural leader anyway, so I'm not really sure why Dunga was so intent on giving him that responsibility. But yeah, and, and particularly following the Olympics, I, I think that's another thing where perhaps Cheech got a little bit lucky is that he came in on the back of that Olympic gold, um, which made kind of made the country feel a little bit better again, I think made the players feel better. And, you know, Neymar captained them to that. And so that was that was kind of a nice way for him to end it. And I think he said straight after the final whistle of that Olympic final, he said, I'm not the captain anymore. I don't want to be the captain anymore. Um, and, that, and that shows you, like you say, a lot of very good managers have tried and failed to handle Neymar. And uh, Cheech has done it absolutely expertly. And, and you're right, he's done it in a way that didn't ostracise him Um you know, he's taken because you kind of got the impression under Dunga, even though they had this, you know, what they call Neymar Dependencia um, in Brazil. You, you kind of got the feeling that Neymar didn't mind that, that actually he quite liked that. He quite liked being the one man team. Um, but that, the fact that Chuch has been able to convince him um, to be, you know, a bit more of a team player and to have this far more solid unit is is a really impressive feat of man management and hugely significant. And Tim, so often when we talk about this Brazil team and when people talk about this Brazil team, they start in the attack and, and understandably mm. so. There's a lot of good names there, but we're going to do it differently on this breakdown of mm. Brazil. We're going to start in the defense because that is where I actually think their strength is. As I said earlier, yep. they've only conceded five times with Cheech in charge. A couple of those in friendlies, a couple of those in big wins. The defense has been so, so good. It's that seven center back pairing. It's Casemiro in front of them. And they've just been absolutely phenomenal. And that gives Brazil so much more relief because they're not having to outscore teams because they're simply not conceding goals. It makes it so much easier to go and win matches. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they've got that attack and nine times out of 10, they only need to score once to win a game. And that's that's huge. And that's huge for their confidence as well. And, you know, we were talking about the idea of shared leadership there. I mean, for me, Whoever's wearing the armband, the the true captain and leader of this team is uh, Joao Miranda, who I think has been the outstanding player um, 
during Cheech's reign, actually. And, and you know, he's he's really quietly kind of led that defence. And, you know, he kind of typifies them in a way in that he's very strong, but he's, you know, he's 33, but he's still quite quick across the ground. They still play a fairly high line in Brazil. So, um, you know, it's not like they don't really play in a deep block. Um, but what, what you can kind of do with this Brazil team is just split them in two. And you've got that kind of six or seven players, you know, in their own half of the pitch who are so formidable, physically strong, quick, um, all understand where they need to be. And then they kind of let the attack do its own thing. And when you've got players like Coutinho and Neymar who like to go wandering and Gabriel Jesus as well, you know, he started as a wide attacker. So he quite likes roaming into those wide areas. And it just gives them the opportunity to kind of have that freedom and that license and the, the defence is formidable. And when, when you're talking about going to a World Cup um, and international tournaments these days are hugely built on, you know, the team that defends best. You know, with Euro 2016, we saw Portugal won it just because they could defend. We've seen Greece win that tournament because they can defend. Brazil can defend. And, you know, like I said, like Marcelo said, they know how to suffer. They can withstand that pressure. And, and that that's... You know, that really, really bodes well for their chances in the tournament, I think, because they're probably going to come up at some point against Spain or Germany or France. And that's when they'll really, really need to rely on that brilliant defence. And uh, I I think they've got the best defence at the tournament. And Casemiro in front of them is a player that I really circle Mm. in this Brazil team because what he does in front of that defensive line frees up everybody else in front of him, like you said, to just really focus on attack. It's not an entire team defensive effort here from Brazil. It's that back line is so good that it allows Neymar and Coutinho and Gabriel Jesus and Willian to not really have to worry about defensive responsibilities Mm. outside of pressing and trying to win the ball back. So Casemiro is, I think, Brazil's most important player, Neymar and everybody else included, because he is the only player in the squad that can fulfill that role, and that role is so important to this Brazil. Yeah, absolutely. And and even when you're talking about, you know, they've got Fernandinho in in the squad, who is a really, really, really top-class defensive midfield player, but you're right, he still doesn't quite offer what Casemiro offers. And and the other thing Casemiro that's really underrated about Casemiro's game is um, his economy in possession. And in particular, he's really good at hitting those wide areas, at spreading the play. And when you've got, I appreciate, unfortunately, he's injured, but um, Dani Alves and you've got Marcelo on the left kind of getting forward. He's really, really good at finding them. And, you know, Brazil are very, very fond of playing that kind of triangle on the left-hand side between kind of when Coutinho comes in and joins up with Neymar and Marcelo on the left. You know, that that kind of triangle, that's where they really hurt teams. And uh, Casemiro is just excellent at getting the ball over there, um, getting the ball into those areas. I think you're right. I think even, you know, someone like Miranda, that, that would be a big loss. But you're looking at Marquinhos coming in and, you know, we're even without Neymar, you know, they'll probably bring in someone like Douglas Costa or perhaps even just will it play William and, and Coutinho. So obviously they're not quite of the quality of Neymar, but you feel like they wouldn't suffer quite as much. But I think you're quite right. There's there's no one else in this squad that does 
um, what Casemiro does. And in the attack, as we've said, it's pretty good in and of itself mm. as well. Neymar, William, Coutinho, Gabriel Jesus, Douglas Costa as an option off the bench. Yeah. I think the biggest question for Cheech is what is the best way to play this attack? What is the best combination of yeah. players together? And Tim, that might not be William and Coutinho together. Brazil mm. might be better off with somebody else in one of those roles. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I so. Personally, I think I like Coutinho, you know, because Brazil kind of have two ways of playing. So when they play it through, through the group stages, we'll see Coutinho, you know, in a slightly deeper role in central midfield against teams that try to block up the game. And that's where, you know, another really good thing Cheech has done is he's, he's really used the friendlies very well and he's taken them very seriously. And uh, they had that nil-nil draw with England at Wembley in November. And that even though it was a disappointing night, that was hugely helpful and useful to Brazil because it caused Cheech to think about um, this problem that teams, particularly in the group stage, are going to try and give Brazil, where they're going to try and kind of um, really play in a deep block and try not to let Brazil play through. And um, and so in, in the group stages, we'll certainly see Coutinho um, in, in central midfield. The question then comes if and when they advance and they play the bigger teams is who plays on the right between Coutinho and Willian. Personally, I, I prefer Willian there. Um, I think he just gives them something slightly different in that he he really stretches the pitch. And I think particularly now they've lost Dani Alves and Danilo is a solid enough defender, but he's not going to give them the attacking thrust down the right that Dani Alves can. And I think that injury, for me, just swings things slightly into Willian's favour. It just gives them that natural width um, on one of the sides. But, you know, Cheech doesn't often play, you know, even in his club career, you look at that Corinthians team he put together, it didn't really have any wingers. He really likes his kind of, his wide players to come inside. But I, I just think that some of the bigger teams might find that slightly easier to deal with. Um, so so for me, I, I would go for Willian on the right, but that's, it's just an example of their depth that they're they're debating between two players of that quality. And Willian has been really good for Brazil, it must mm. be said. Even under Dunga, he was kind of the one player that always impressed me for Brazil under Dunga. Yeah. And, and with Cheech, he's kind of forced his way into the conversation because when Cheech took yeah. over, Willian was, was viewed as, as a reserve. But as you yeah. said, he's right in that conversation. He's been starting in these friendlies alongside Coutinho. And I think I agree with you because of the width that he can give. Coutinho is a pretty good plan B to bring off the bench. Yeah. Speaking of plan Bs, is Roberto Firmino the plan B for you, or do you think he should be starting over Gabriel Jesus? I don't think he should be starting over Gabriel Jesus. Um, I, I understand people ask me this question a lot. They kind of say, oh, which, which one? And, and again, it's an example of their depth. Um, you know, they, they haven't had a decent number nine for about 10 years, and then all of a sudden they've got two of the best in Europe to choose between. But for me, Firmino just doesn't quite work for Brazil. I don't know what it is, but I get the impression that he and Neymar just kind of get in each other's way, um, which is quite weird because, you know, when you look at the job Firmino does so brilliantly for Liverpool, it's all built on making space for, for you know, Salah and Mane uh, coming from wide. But I just don't think Firmino and Neymar have ever really hit off that relationship. And I, I kind of feel like Firmino gets in the way a little bit or maybe to phrase it slightly better he doesn't know when to get out of the way which uh, which Gabriel Jesus knows really well because he you know he started in that kind of left-sided attacking role so for me it has to be Gabriel Jesus and Gabriel Jesus 
does so much unselfish running um, that really, really helps Neymar, that really frees Neymar up. Um, and sometimes, you know, you'll watch Gabriel Jesus and there are times where he barely kicks the ball and you think, oh, is he really what Brazil need? But what he gives you off the ball is just so, so important. And he might not touch the ball, but he helps Neymar to get it and to get it in more space. So for me, it's not even a question. And if, if maybe if there's a weakness in this Brazil squad, it's that they don't really have a different option, you know, particularly up front. Listen, when someone says they don't have a plan B, what people mean when they say plan B is they don't have someone who's six foot seven to wallop the ball up to. But the, the kind of issue they've got is that Firmino and Jesus are quite similar. Um, and if they're chasing a game with kind of 20, 15, 20 minutes left, I'm not sure they can really change things up um, that much. I, th- I think that, it's the only slight concern about this Brazil attack. And when you saw Joe in such good form for Corinthians last year, I mm. think that's where the calls to put him in the national team were. It was never <laughs> Joe should be starting. But when you're at the World Cup, like you said, there may be that one match where you need somebody for 15 minutes that can go in there and dig and be big and physical. And Brazil yeah. doesn't have that player. So that's a potential weakness. Are there any other potential weaknesses when you look at this squad? For me, right back is a question mark. Danny Alves, yep. obviously not great defensively, but provided such width in the attack. Danilo and Fagner, the two right backs in the squad, don't do that. Danilo mm. has left me with a little bit of a question mark in the two friendlies. Uh, he played all 90 minutes in each, which I think yeah. probably means he's going to be the starter for Brazil. I personally would go with Fagner because I think he's just that much more stable defensively. He gives you nothing in the attack, but I don't know that Danilo gives you enough for him to be starting over Fagner. Again, that's really the only weakness that I see in this Brazil squad other than a potential where Casemiro gets himself suspended because of yellow card accumulation. But other than that, it's hard to really pick out any weaknesses. There's depth at every position. There's three center backs you feel comfortable starting. There's so many midfielders. There's attacking players. The weaknesses are very, very small. Yeah, and even in goal, they've, they've got two pretty good goalkeepers as well. I, I completely agree. And, and the thing is as well, the, the kind of, I suppose, unfortunate thing is they could have Brazil could have absorbed an injury to Marcelo much more easily than they could have Dani Alves because again they've got an embarrassment of riches at left back. Felipe Luis, I really, really like, think he's a super left back. And they've got Alexandro from Juventus who would start for most countries and can't even get into this squad. So had you know Marcelo been the unfortunate one, they could have absorbed that loss easily enough, even though Marcelo is probably the best left back in the world. Um, at right back, yeah, you're right. And and this is where, you know, Cheech is a very, very cautious coach. And after the Croatia friendly last week, he spoke about Danilo and he said, I don't need him to give me what Marcelo gives me. Um, he said, you know, Marcelo is one of, is like, because nobody does what Marcelo does except Dani Alves. And, uh, and it's very, very clear that his idea and his instructions for Danilo are, look, I know you can't really give us anything going forward, so just be solid and do your job. And, you know, Danilo's a bit of a six or seven out of ten fullback. It's it's not a huge weakness, but it's a relative weakness considering what they've lost in Dani Alves and the fact that they don't have another right back in that style. They don't even, you know, they don't have like, and a, like a poor man's version of Danny Alves, they just have two fairly functional jobbing right backs. And but but the interesting thing was when Croatia played Brazil last week, they they were really targeting Marcelo's side because he gets forward so much. They were really 
really targeting Brazil's left-hand side early in the game. So that might be something to watch. And I think we certainly see teams do that to Real Madrid as well. Um, so how they cope with that in the kind of bigger games, that, that might be a bit of a question mark as well. But yeah, the, there's not there's not really many weaknesses at all in this Brazil side. Even Fridge, who's just gone to Manchester United, you know, in a, in a big money deal, he he'll probably only get a few substitute minutes. Um, you know, they're 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 that deep in every position. Is there anything in this group to you, Tim, that suggests that Brazil might be troubled? Uh, Costa Rica particularly play the type of style that Brazil have struggled mm-hmm. with, but maybe not at the level that is that is there to struggle. Brazil, Serbia, and Switzerland are adequate European sides who will certainly fight for second. But I view this kind of like I view Germany's group for them. There's not a whole lot here that would really worry you for Brazil. Maybe they they win the group with seven points rather than nine, but it's hard to see anybody really putting Brazil under pressure. Yeah, not in this group. I I think you're quite right. There are teams who have a style that might give Brazil problems, but again, where Brazil just don't concede goals, um, you know, even against Croatia in the, the first half an hour against Croatia, Croatia were much the better team. Um, and Brazil were really having problems adjusting to this high press that they were playing and Croatia matched them up all over the pitch. And I'm sure other teams will have watched that and thought, yeah, this is the way to play against Brazil. But the, the, pro- the problem for other teams is you can put Brazil under pressure, you can be in the ascendancy, but if you can't score a goal, it just, it just doesn't really matter. And, and another thing, you know, Cheech is very, very good at solving problems. And that's where he's used these friendlies really wisely. He's tried to pick opponents that he thinks will give him problems, like the problem England gave him, um, which which was a real kind of a bit of a gift, um, really, because it really caused him to rethink against defensive teams. And I, in this group, I, I don't see anyone laying a glove on them, um, quite frankly, where, you know, where they play someone like Spain or Germany, if they go for a bit of a high press, that that might be where they run into problems. But I just don't think anyone in this group has, has got the quality to score a goal against them, um, quite frankly. And on the topic of friendlies very quickly, Tim, one thing that Cheech did so well, the Germany friendly in March that Brazil won, not because they won it, but simply that they played it and got at least as much as you can of the 7-1 out of the system. They let the media go through that whole parade that if Brazil do run against Germany in the World Cup, and there's a scenario in which that is in the round of 16, talk about that as a mouthwatering tie, or potentially even in the final, you think Brazil will be better off having played Germany regardless of what the result was. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That is what that was all about. Um, You know, at first, straight after 2014, the CBF went into typical CVF mode and they tried to um, arrange a friendly but it was you know it's because they felt a bit emasculated and they wanted revenge and uh, quite sensibly Germany just turned it down just ignored them but uh, yeah Cheech really wanted to play that friendly I think he really wanted that out of the way of course they played Germany in the Olympic final but not really the same that was an under 23 team and even a weak under 23 team I think in truth Uh, from Germany so absolutely they just wanted to get that out of the way Um, and it was a hugely useful game for them because again they didn't have Neymar and they built it on their defense and uh, they played a really solid game you know had one one chance really with Gabriel Jesus scored it and just didn't concede and and that you know the, the friendlies he's kind of set up he's largely gone for 
defensive opposition um, who try and play big numbers at the back because I think he he's certainly looking at the group stages. But that Germany game, that was also about, right, we need to prepare for when we play a big team. Um, and that, that, that Germany game was hugely useful tactically and psychologically. And, um, I, yeah, I, I think it's all set for these two teams to meet. Um, I think they're going to meet in the final. Um, personally, that's my my prediction. Um, and really, you could you could toss a coin about which way that might go. That won't be stressful at all for those of us rooting <laughs> for Brazil. No, no, that'll be fine. Great theater. Uh, my next question was going to be how far do you think Brazil can go? But you mm. spoiled the answer there. You think they're going to make the final? They'll play Germany, and we'll see yeah. what happens there. I think they'll make the final as well. I have them playing Spain. I, I just have Spain yeah. a little bit ahead of Germany, but mainly that's. Just a, cope, a coping mechanism for me so that I don't have to think about the possibility of a Brazil-Germany final and all of that. It's, they're going to play one of those two teams completely. I, I really think that will happen. I think so, too. Tim, before we let you go, where can the listeners find you on social media? And is there anything you'd like to plug sure. before I let you go? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm at Stilberto um, on Twitter, which is a clever name because I'm an Arsenal fan and I follow Brazilian football. Um, I write for a site called Samba Fudge and I'll be writing about Brazil during the World Cup. I've got an article coming out on Wednesday about Thiago Silva, for example. Um, and I've also got an article coming out on the World Football Index early this week about um, Lionel Messi as well. So, um, yeah, I follow Combi Ball uh, quite a lot. But for my sins, I'm an Arsenal fan as well. So I tweet about them a lot, if you can tolerate that. And an Atletico Minato fan as well. Yeah, yes, I have to get true, that in there. True. Plenty of, of Gallo tweets <laughs> as well. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. And we're joined now by Sonja Nikcevic, the official FIFA team reporter for Serbia, who's going to talk us through Serbia here at this World Cup. Sonja, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you today? I'm great, and I'm really excited to be here talking to you about Serbia's chances at this World Cup. So, Sonja, let's get right into it. Serbia back in the World Cup after they missed Brazil 2014, and they did so by coming through a fairly tricky qualification group in UEFA. What did you think? allowed Serbia to be so successful in qualification? I think, first of all, it was a little bit the luck of the draw. There was no clear favorite in Serbia's qualification group. It was a lot of tough teams. There was Wales with Gareth Bale, who's always in fantastic form, whether he plays for club or country and when he's fit. There was a Republic of Ireland sign who's kind of gritty and physical in the same way that Serbia is. And then there were some tricky teams like Georgia and others that uh, Serbia have a history of underestimating and uh, that most people were m most worried about much more than let's say the the higher ranked teams there was also Austria which is kind of like a tricky wild card in every sense and I think what gave Serbia the edge is the former coach Muslin who put the players in the right mindset and did not let them underestimate a single one of those opponents. And Serbia went through those matches in the right form and of mind and in the right physical form, and they did well. They actually played a couple of really intense matches where they went went behind and then kind of came back and won, and won the match, which is not something that as somebody who's been following the Serbian team as a fan and as a journalist is not something that I remember seeing a lot of the time. So their minds were in the right places for the first time after a long time. And this is Serbia's 
first competition after three failed tries. They didn't qualify for the last two Euros and they didn't qualify for the last World Cup. And this is the first time when people said, you know what, this team is actually serious. They can get they can pass through each of these opponents, and they did, and they topped the group. And Sonia, this Serbia side is really exciting heading to Russia, and I think one of the names that is certainly on the lips of a lot of people is, is Sergei Milinkovic-Savic, uh, the Lazio midfielder, just 23, only three caps for Serbia, but he's a name that a lot of people are looking at at this World Cup. Talk us through him a little bit and what his role will be in this Serbia team. So that's the thing. Uh, Milinkovic-Savic is definitely one of Europe's most sought-after players at the moment. Like you said, he's 23 years old. He's a huge name in Italian football now. And if you would ask an Italian journalist or commentator who's the hottest prospect in Italian football at the moment who's playing in the league, they'll say Milinkovic-Savic, no question. And um, he was the star of Serbia's under-20 national team that won the FIFA World Cup in New Zealand in 2015. And uh, that's when people started saying, you know what, this kid is really, really good. So Milinkovic Savic has that um, air of a vintage number 10 around him, the kind of Zidane style, Xavi style player who, who pulls the strings of any team that he's in and who can kind of change the, the complete air of the team depending on his form. So if he's playing well in a match, the team's playing well. If he's quiet, the team doesn't have that motor force. That's why in Lazio, he has the nickname the Sergeant, Il Sergente, and uh, everything depends on him in, in that sense. And a lot of the time, he's pushed Lazio through. And um, the thing with him is that he has not played a single competitive match for Serbia. Those three caps that he has have all been in friendlies. And the issue is that the former coach, Muslin, did not call on Sergei Milinkovic-Savic for the qualifiers. And there was a big question if he was going to be even called up for the World Cup which is one of the main factors that led to Musin being sacked and Mladen Krstajic being appointed as the new Serbia coach with almost zero experience. Milinko Savic is in the team now, and he has played in Serbia's last friendly just a couple of days ago against Chile, which Serbia lost. But the moment that Milinkovic Savic entered the field, Serbia had much more of the ball. And you could see that he ha- has a lot of confidence that he knows what he wants with the ball when he gets the ball. And the only question is now, is he overconfident for 23? Will the fact that he's the most sought after player in Europe be in his head every time he has the ball in a Serbia match? Or will he gel well with the rest of the team? We don't know. A lot of things about this Serbia team are a question mark. And Milinkovic Savic is the biggest one. He has so much star potential, but can he bring it to the national team? We'll have to see. I mean, he's really going to have his big moment in the first match. It's either going to be fly or flop, and we'll just have to see. And let's talk about the rest of this Serbian side. Certainly some familiar names to those that follow the Premier League. You have Aleksandar Mitrovic up top, Nemanja Matic in the midfield, Aleksandar Kolarov, the captain. What do you kind of make of the rest of this Serbian side? There looks to be a lot of veteran presence. And how do you think they'll approach this World Cup? How do you think they'll look to play? I mean, the question with Serbia has always been consistency. On paper, Serbia is a really strong side. I mean, I think that if you ask every single national team coach at this World Cup if they would 
want to have Nemanja Matic in their team, they would say absolutely 100% yes, he would be my starting defensive midfielder. Matic is basically the backbone of this team, and I think he's one of the only players that you won't question whether his consistency will be there and whether he'll perform. He will. The question is, will the rest of the team be able to match his level? And one very, very promising thing for the Serbia team is how well uh, so many of these players have performed on a club level. We have Alexander Mitrovic, who you mentioned, who helped the team where he's on loan now, Fulham, um, make it back into the Premier League, who played uh, the final of that playoff at Wembley, and who has been receiving praises from all sides. Then we have Luka Milivojevic, who has been fantastic for Crystal Palace. We have Dusan Tadic, who's also put in a great display for Southampton. A lot of Serbian players throughout the years have gone through that criticism that many world-class players, including Lionel Messi, faces, Criticism when they don't perform at a country level as well as they do on a club level. And I think a lot of those question marks will be asked at the Serbia team as well. And like I said, it's still a big unknown. It's an unknown how well this team will gel together, mostly because the coaches knew. And because there's a feeling here in Serbia that it isn't really clear what the coach wants from this team, what tactics he's using and what uh, core philosophy is the philosophy behind this team. There is a very, um, there's there's a back line that has a lot of experience that has over 200 caps between them, over 250 caps actually. There's a very young midfield and front line and uh, our coach has said that he's actually building a team for the future, not just for this championship. And nobody really has any idea how that's going to work. And we have played two friendlies in the March slot from FIFA, where uh, the first one against Morocco was very, very disappointing. And the second one against Nigeria was a 2-0 win, where Serbia performed much better. Serbia lost there um, in, the, in the second window of friendlies just a couple of days ago. Serbia lost 1-0 against Chile. And the atmosphere in Serbia now is back to negative, just like after that first match against Morocco, with people saying, there's no vision here. The team doesn't know what it's doing when it has the ball. The coach doesn't know what he wants from this team. And there's a lot of questions being asked about how a coach with so little experience could be appointed just months before the World Cup. He was appointed, confirmed, he was appointed as, as a caretaker manager at uh, the end of 2017 and then confirmed at the beginning of this year that he would be going on with this team to the World Cup. And from what we see, there seems to be a nice atmosphere in the team. But the question is, can that be, can that bring results? And is there a core philosophy that this team can actually find in these 10 days before their first match? So a lot of question marks with this Serbia team, a lot of unknowns, a lot of things that will be interesting to see as they go through the group stage. So who are some potential breakout players in this Serbian squad? When you when you look at the squad, when you look at maybe some of the younger, lesser-known players, who are some that you have your eye on that could make a name for themselves here at this World Cup? Well, I think there's, there's a couple that uh, will definitely be the first that the coach will look to when things maybe don't go well. I think a really, really interesting player to look at in defense is... 
Nikola Milenkovic. He plays for Fiorentina and he plays as a central defender who can also slot in as a back. And uh, this is his debut for the World Cup. He's been called up for the first time. And um, he played in that friendly against Chile, and he was very, very strong in that central defender position. And he is one of our tallest players at, oh, sorry, I'm going to say this in centimeters, 195. And um, he is actually really, really good. He's been getting so much praise from Fior from uh, Fiorentina in Italy, and he's very good in the air, but actually very good with his feet as well. And he's one of those who might even, if the coach has any doubts about how aging the back four is, he could be somebody who can even get a starting starting position in this team. So that's in terms of defense. In terms of midfield, I mean, everybody will be looking at Sergei Milinkovic-Savic, like we said. But there's also... Another young player, Nemanja Radonjic, who plays for Red Star, who's one of the three players in the national team who comes from a club in Serbia at the moment. And uh, he is a fast player who can play either in central or midfield or on the wing as well. And he's fast and he's very intelligent with the ball. And he had a title of being a bad boy in Serbia, kind of going out and partying and not really caring about football much. And now in the past season, he's come back to Red Star after a couple of stints abroad that didn't really work out. And he finally seems to have his head in the right place. And when his head is in the right place, he can carry this team on the wing because he's very, very fast and he's very intelligent when he has the ball. He likes to dribble and test defenders and he could easily kind of be Serbia's wild card there. And we have also one more who's Luka Jovic, who's an attacker who plays in Germany in Eintracht and who has had a fantastic season in Germany and uh, in an attacking position. And he is Serbia's wild card in attack where we have Mitrovic and we have Priovic, which are two players who are the typical number nines, uh, like the attackers who are not very mobile and who don't really go back and get the ball, but who kind of wait as marksmen to be to be served the ball. And Luka Jovic is a much pacier attacker who can kind of be creative in his role in the box, but who cannot, who's also not afraid, afraid to venture outside of the box. So I think that a lot of people in Serbia are actually re thrilled that he's been called up and that he's made the final 23 squad. I think that the moment Serbia shows that they can't find their way to the goal, a lot of people will be asking for Jovic to come off the bench and possibly change something, bring more creativity. When you look at this group for Serbia, it kind of looks as though the draw went about as perfectly as it could have gone for a team coming out of the fourth pot. They drew Brazil, of course, which is a very difficult opponent. But Serbia don't have to play Brazil until the third group stage match. There's certainly a scenario in which Brazil is on six points and already through from this group and could have a rotated Brazil squad in that match. They play Costa Rica, probably the weakest team in this group first. Sonia, if Serbia can get three points from that first match against Costa Rica, surely the team and the fans will be dreaming of getting out of this group. Group E, will they? Oh, absolutely. I think that Serbia had a lot of luck, like you said, first with having been the fourth uh, in the fourth pot uh, and getting a group that is actually playable, where you don't have two teams that are almost guaranteed to go through and that you're basically hoping for a miracle or a slip up, but you have 
one team who you think should make it no question and then three teams who can kind of like battle it out for that second position and I think Serbia sees itself as being able to do that and I think we had as much luck with the actual uh, draw of scheduling of which game is being played when playing Brazil third instead of first like Switzerland are doing are much is a much different scenario because that first match is always the most important and um, if you go in it with the right mindset and if you get out of it with a mindset of we started well, we have points now, I think that that could help Serbia a lot. It can be so hard to play against those teams that sit back and defend. And like you said, Navas has been in fantastic form in goal. He could absolutely take points for Costa Rica at any point in this World Cup. Well, Sonia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to tell the listeners where they can find you on social media as well as if there's anything you'd like to plug right now. Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, I'm going to be the FIFA team reporter for Serbia at this World Cup. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter on my personal account, which is SoniaNick13 on Twitter. But I also have that FIFA Blue Tick account, which is... um, FIFA World Cup SRB, like Serb. And uh, so that is where I'll be posting exclusive content from Serbia's trainings, from Serbia's base, which I will be traveling to this weekend. And um, then from each of Serbia's matches and press conferences, trainings, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff will be put up there as well. For any Serbia fans or anybody who, who's looking for a team to follow or, or a dark horse to follow at this World Cup, there's also a Facebook group for, for Serbia fans, which is FIFA World Cup Serbia fans. So you can find me there as well. We'll also be posting some um, Facebook Live videos from the base camp, from training and from things like that to kind of give everybody a feel of what it's like to be at the World Cup and actually see see the World Cup from from kind of like a, a perspective, not, not maybe of a player, but who's somebody who's on the ground there living it every day with the players. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So follow along. As somebody who is planning on watching the entirety of the World Cup from my television, Television in my living room can say quite jealous of your experiences and will for sure be following along and, and attempting to at least live somewhat vicariously through you. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Sonia. It was, it was certainly a pleasure to have you. And now we're joined by Eddie Mendez here on the show who's going to talk us through Costa Rica. Eddie, very happy to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Surprising run to the quarterfinals in 2014 for Costa Rica. Obviously one of the best footballing moments for this country. This team heading to this World Cup in Russia is nearly the same as that one is that a good thing or a bad thing for Costa Rica I guess it depends on who you ask um you know when when it works out people are gonna say that we were experienced when it doesn't we're gonna be too old but um continuity is really something that we have that most of the nations aren't going to have um you know you come together on a really short time period and you're trying to get together and, and get some sort of continuity going and and just understand each other and then for us, having been there before four years ago and fast forward to today, it, it can it's something that could work in our favor, especially if you look at a young team like Serbia uh, with a new manager, you know, to, to have the continuity that we have. Maybe that's something that could just put us over the top. There will be no question marks for Costa Rica and how they'll look to play. And as you said, they've played together a lot in a lot of different competitions. And that could certainly be a strength for them at this World Cup. Yeah. And, you know, if, even even though a lot of the players are the same, uh, what, what separates us really from 2014, I think, is the overall depth. In 2014, you know, we were still relying on the likes of Alvaro Saborio and Chiqui Brenes, whereas today... You know, we have uh, some younger players coming in, like a Johan Venegas. Marco Reña has really come on. 
Um, and, you know, just our options off the bench, if, if things aren't going well, it's a lot stronger than it was four years ago. So the 11 may look the same, but uh, what we have coming off the bench or what, what, what Machio has at his disposal is a lot better than it was four years ago. Eddie, Costa Rica in 2014 played a very defensive style. They were very successful with that and looking to counter. Do you expect to see the same from Costa Rica at this World Cup, the same type of style, that same reliance on the defense? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Machio really hasn't wavered from the 5-4-1 that Pinto played four years ago. Um, to his credit, there, there have been moments during qualifying and even uh, in the last Gold Cup where he... He will adapt his tactics a little bit, you know, moving more to a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3 type system. So he, he has a little bit more tactical flexibility than, than Pinto did. But for the most part, you will see Costa Rica come out in that 5-4-1, um, really rely on the defense, kind of absorb pressure, and then just try and strike teams on the counter. Navas, of course, one of the best goalkeepers in world football right now. The defense in front of him, as we've said, is very important. Who are kind of the key pieces in that defense for Costa Rica in front of Navas that you'll look at as, as kind of keys for them in this tournament? Unfortunately, I think it's going to be Johnny Acosta. Um Machio is very loyal to his guys, and Acosta is a 34-year-old center back who, you know, is lacking pace. He's about five foot nine, but uh, he does a very good job in in organizing the back line as more of kind of a six. So I, I feel like Machio is is going to rely on him early on in the tournament. Uh, if it doesn't go well, you know, you can probably see him being the first man out of that back line. But for me personally, the the one. The one defender that I'm really looking forward to to watching this World Cup is Kendall Waston. Um, you know, if you watch MLS, Waston is an incredibly strong center back, um, very good in the air, very good with his head, very you know strong, physical. And I, I just I don't know. I've, ever since he moved from Saprissa to Vancouver, I always viewed it as kind of the first step and what would be eventually a move to Europe. And I feel like if he has a standout. World Cup that you could see him move from Vancouver overseas and he just for, for whatever reason I just see him playing for somebody like Leicester City he just he's that quintessential big stocky English type center back so I can see him playing more in that league so I just really hope that he has the type of performance that would catch some eyes over in Europe certainly has the strength to fit in any of those leagues. Like you said, a big, strong center back in the back for Costa Rica. Eddie, when Costa Rica do look to go forward, who are some of the players that you look at that will be key to that counterattack? Obviously, Brian Ruiz, the number 10, will be huge. Joel Campbell in the squad, still just 25 somehow, which is a fact that shocks me every time I see it. Feels like he's been around forever because he has. And then Marco Urena, another one that you've mentioned has played well. Are those kind of the names that you look at, or are there a couple other names there too? I actually think... When when the counter is going to start, it's really going to come from our wingbacks. Um, Gamboa is a player uh, who plays on the right side. And, you know, he after he had a pretty good 2014, he moved to West Brom. Uh, unfortunately, when he got to West Brom, uh, Tony Pulis took over and people realized that Tony Pulis just doesn't like soccer. So an attack minded wingback is never going to work out over there. Moves to Celtic, doesn't really get time with Brendan Rodgers over the last season, just really fell out of favor. But uh, it's still a, a key player in our back line and really a key player in, in our counterattack just because of his pure pace um, and his technical ability. So I, I really feel like he's going to be that that first uh, that that initial spark for us on the counterattack. And if we can find ourselves in moments where he's going maybe two V one down that right side with Joel Campbell, I kind of feel like that would really work in our favor, especially if we're playing a team that 
is going to send their fullbacks forward. You know, you, you think of Brazil. If Marcelo is going to be Marcelo and he's going to go up, and then that's just going to be a lot of space for Gamboa to counterattack into. And I think with his pace, he can cause a lot of problems. So I think it'll start with Gamboa. And one player that that really joins the counterattack towards the end, you know, people will look at Urania, people will look at Brian Reese and Joel Campbell. But the third man runs that Celso Borges provides for midfield uh, is is really, really key in, in our counterattack because he'll kind of just wait at the top of the box. And Gamboa is really good at pulling that ball back for Borges. And, and if, if Borges can just latch on to one. Uh, it could really be the difference between, you know, maybe a 1-0 win or a 2-1 win. Part of the difficulty of playing that type of style, as you kind of alluded to there, is you do have to be clinical when you have those chances. But as we saw in 2014, when you are clinical, it can be very, very successful. Eddie, what's the mood like in Costa Rica ahead of this World Cup? What are the expectations? Is this group kind of playing with house money after 2014? Is there some feeling of that, or are there still high expectations for them? Yeah, I think that the expectations are pretty high. Just, uh... The, the sending the sending off game that we had against Northern Ireland, it was a very festive atmosphere. Uh, the Estadio Nacional was really rocking, um, and the hopes are, are pretty high. Even when this group initially came out, you know, call it ignorance or, or just call it blind faith, but all the people that I spoke to immediately, like, oh, we can get out of this group. It's, it's doable. Um, I, a, a lot of that has to do with where we were in 2014, and... The group then, I think, top to bottom was stronger. Um, so being able to come out of that group and come out of that group as the winner, it, it kind of really raised expectations in Costa Rica. And then the qualifying campaign that we had, which was just absolutely stellar. You know, when when we started qualifying in the fourth round in CONCACAF, when we had Panama, Jamaica and Haiti, and we, we basically topped that group having not lost the game. And then they go to the Hex. And they really only lost one game, and that was to Panama, but we had already qualified. I'm sorry, we also lost to Mexico. I, I try to wipe that out of my memory. But for the most part, you know, it, it was an unblemished qualifying campaign. So when when that just when the expectations are going to continue to rise as we continue to have more success. So when this group came out, Serbia does look dangerous. You know, Switzerland does look strong. How Switzerland is sixth in FIFA rankings is beyond me, but um, – just looking at those two teams, we feel like we match up well. Uh, obviously, the difference between 2014 and 2018 is going to be having Brazil in that group, um, a, a clear favorite, like guaranteed to make the semifinal type favorite, which wasn't there in 2014. But even still, I, the mood the mood is pretty high. The mood is pretty high. We're, we're all expecting to at least get out of the group. All right, Eddie, are there any potential breakout players in this Costa Rican squad? It's a veteran group. There's a lot of players that we've seen before on the World Cup stage. Who's somebody that maybe you look at that could fly under the radar a bit and have a big World Cup and maybe break out? The the one that will have probably the most chance um, that people in MLS circles are going to know is Johan Venegas. Um, he's still young. Um, he didn't really have a good campaign in MLS with Montreal and then heading to Minnesota. So he went back to Costa Rica uh, with Saprisa and helped them. Granted, not, the fans weren't always on his side, but pretty much helped the club uh, win their 34th league title. So he enters this World Cup in a, in a position that Machio just really loves him. Again, Machio always loyal to his guys. This is a player that he had in Alajuelense. So Venegas is going to have his opportunity to shine because Marco Ureña is very hit or miss. And if Ureña isn't clicking um, with the midfield, then Machia was going to put Venegas in as a striker. And Venegas' pace is something that, you know, he's going to look to exploit. 
I think another name that nobody knows of that is going to have a chance is Ian Smith. Ian Smith is a 20-year-old wingback. Uh, he's basically Gamboa's um, replacement. And he right now he's playing in Sweden. He was playing at Santos de Huapiles in, uh, in Costa Rica last season when Santos made a pretty deep run into the the CCL when they had that, that playoff system. Um, they lost to Olympia in the final. But uh, he's a player that's he's only 20. He's incredibly fast. Uh, incredibly skilled, and it was kind of a a shock that Machio took him. And the only reason that he actually made this roster is because um, Jose Salvatierra, which was a fullback at Al Valencia, he ended up getting hurt um, just about two weeks before the season ended. So it opened the door for Ian Smith to come in. So if, if Gamboa, you know, he he can't he can't run himself to death. Eventually, Gamboa is going to have to come off and. I think when Ian Smith gets his opportunity to step in, that he can really turn some heads. Eddie, before we let you go, where can the listeners find you on social media? And is there anything that you want to plug right now before we let you go? Sure. You can follow me on Twitter at CRC Football. It's the Spanish spelling. So it's F-U-T-B-O-L. Uh, I also recently started a website, CRC Football, where I try to anything that's beyond 280 characters and I start rambling, I'll typically put it to a to, to an article or something. So you can always find follow my work there. I'm trying to be a bit more more proactive on it, but you know, between coaching and and taking care of my family and all that, you know, things get in the way. But uh, definitely follow me on Twitter throughout the World Cup. Um, I'm actually doing some stuff with Copa 90 and Telemundo, so I, I'll be a correspondent for uh, for Telemundo during that Brazil Costa Rica game on June 22nd. So you could also check me out there. We'll be sure to check you out. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Eddie, and have a good one. Hey, man, you too. And to close out this Group E podcast. We are joined by Oliver Zeisker, who's going to take us through the final team that we've yet to cover in Switzerland. Oliver, it's a fourth consecutive World Cup for Switzerland. Are the expectations that this side can again make it to the round of 16? Uh, that certainly is the expectation in Switzerland among the fans. And the Swiss FA has already announced that they want to reach the quarterfinals even. But there's a big problem uh, in the group. If Switzerland comes in second, then Germany could await. And I think that would uh, mean the end in the round of the last 16. But generally, the expectations have risen. Um, the expectations were always round of the last 16, even at the Euros in 2016. And right now, general public sees the problem in Germany, but uh, they, all say, they all say it's possible to win even the group and then advance to the quarters. But generally, I think uh, people will be satisfied with the round of the last 16. Take us through this Switzerland side, Oliver. Who are some of the players that you think will be key, and how do you think they'll look to play? The uh, starting lineup, especially against Brazil, looks pretty set. Uh, it'll certainly be Jan Sommer in goal. Then uh, central-back pairing of Manuel Akanji and uh, Fabian Scher. Stefan Lickstein, the new Arsenal signing on the right side. And on the left side, Ricardo Rodriguez from AC Milan. Um, defensively in midfield, Valomberami behind Grani Chaka, of course, and Grani Chaka is a key player. He's uh, the main playmaker in midfield. He dictates the tempo of the play, he dictates the direction of the play. Um, he is the brain of the team. Then ahead of him is, uh, is Blair and Jamaili. Uh, on the right side wing position is Sheridan Shakiri. On the left wing position, probably Steven Super, maybe Brelan Bolo, but I believe it's Steven Super from Hoffenheim. And up front will be Haris Seferovic. Now, another key player uh, besides Shaka is Sheridan Shakiri because we don't have good strikers. We need to rely on him to score from, uh, from far out. Uh, to cut inside from the right side and uh, 
shoot with his left. Um, he's another key player. The third key player may become Manuel Akanji in, in uh, central defense because his ability to not only be a good defender but uh, to to uh, make good passes from the back, as some of you have, may have seen in uh, Dortmund in the last six months. So uh, those are three key players we have and we need to rely on. Oliver, the manager Petkovic has been in charge since after the 2014 World Cup. What's his managerial style and kind of what has he done and how has he done with the Swiss national team? Um, he's done very well. Um, he faced an uphill battle from the start because he succeeded uh, Ottmar Hitzfeld. Hitzfeld was very successful, but the play of Switzerland wasn't always as attractive. So Petkovic took what Hitzfeld left him in a, in a successful side, but not a very attractive side, and tried to make them play more attacking. This uh, pretty much succeeded. They didn't qualify Switzerland won 9 out of 10 games. Unfortunately, lost the 10th to Portugal, which meant they had to go to the playoffs. And... Um, Hitzfeld is a very hands-on coach. He's uh, multilingual. Uh, he's a former social worker, so he's, he looks he does rely a lot on team spirit. It's his main goal to, to keep the team together, to, to have a great team spirit and play good football that way. Oliver, in this Group E, of course, there is Brazil, the favorites, the team everybody expects to go through. Then there's Switzerland and also Serbia and Costa Rica. Switzerland, obviously, as just about every team in this group, views themselves with a chance to get out of this group. But they are unfortunate in that they have to play Brazil first. So barring a shocking result there, they'll probably be playing from behind in this group. How do you think that will affect how Switzerland approached this group? and approach those final two matches against Serbia and Costa Rica? I see it differently. I think it's an advantage to play Brazil at first. Um, as you may or may not remember, in 2010, Switzerland played Spain at first, uh, beat them, uh, but then uh, didn't qualify for the next round. I think Brazil is somewhat of a free game. If you get a point, that's a point one. If you even win against Brazil, then that's uh, excellent. But if you lose, it's normal. So you have still two games to turn around the group. And uh, I think the key game of this group is Serbia. Serbia is um, pretty evenly matched with Switzerland. I think this will be a very midfield-heavy game against the Serbs, who have a very good midfield in Milinkovic, Savic, Nemanja, Matic. And uh, Costa Rica is a bit the unknown, but if I remember in 2014, they topped their group of death with Uruguay, with England and Italy. So um, they certainly are not uh, a team to look past. So it's, it's going to be very, very, very um, difficult to qualify, especially since not many people here in Switzerland know uh, Costa Rica. And uh, I'm just I'm trying to warn them because everybody thinks, yeah, we're going to easily beat Costa Rica. And that's, that won't be the case, pretty, pretty sure. Um, Serbia is certainly the key game. We need at least a point from there. If we manage to win against Serbia, it looks very good. If it's a point, then we'll have to beat, then we'll be under pressure and have to beat Costa Rica, which could be difficult. And you're exactly right, Oliver. It could be difficult because in talking with Eddie Mendez earlier in the show about Costa Rica, they'll play that defensive style that was so successful for them in 2014. And when you're the team that needs to go and get the three points, that can be so difficult to face those defensive sides and to have to try to break them down to get that goal because Costa Rica can hold out for a point and they can hold out for a point really well because they're that strong. How does Switzerland do against those teams that bunker in and look to defend? Did they have any success against those in qualifying? There were a lot of weaker teams in our qualifying group. I mean, Andorra was one team, uh, the Faroe Islands, I believe. I'm 
just uh, I'm blanking on it, but it doesn't matter. Um, those teams with lesser quality, they, Switzerland has no problem beating, but Costa Rica has more quality. And we lack goals. Our strikers are not very good at finishing, as Harry Seferovic was our uh, qualification top scorer with four goals. So that tells you a lot. Uh, four goals in 10 games isn't a lot. And this could prove difficult. Um, I'm dreading this game a little bit because if we really need uh, to win this game, this could be a nervy, nervy affair. And they have Kellen Navas in goal, one of the best keepers in the world right now, um, three-time consecutive Champions League winner, etc., etc. So um, I'm not really looking forward to the uh, to the affair that is the game against uh, Costa Rica because I'm not very good with my nerves and uh, others may not be as well, uh, even in the team maybe. So um, yeah. That's uh, that's a bad matchup in my in my opinion. It could almost be like that playoff was against Northern Ireland, where over the two legs, Switzerland scored the one goal and got through to the World Cup. But it certainly was by no means easy, and it could be a couple of matches a lot like that. It certainly looks like this. Uh, even against Northern Ireland, Switzerland were the better team for maybe a, a game maybe 90, 110 minutes, 120 minutes, but they only won because of a dodgy penalty. So um, you see uh, the comparison is really uh, is certified. Of, uh, so I, I, don't, I don't like this game. I don't like this group because the group is stronger than everybody expects. I think it's one of the toughest groups to get out and uh, everybody's underestimating Costa Rica, in my opinion. Oliver, take me through if there's any sort of breakout players you could see in this squad. I, I see some young ages when I look at the squad list. Is there anybody that looking at this team you think could maybe have a breakout World Cup and find their name on a bigger stage? Um, sure, maybe not find their name on a bigger stage, but Manuel Akanji, I've mentioned before. Uh, he's 22. He made the transfer from Basel to Dortmund in January. Um, he is team archetype of a modern defender technically good very 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 quick um, strong athletic um, good at man marking good with heading uh, and good good passing range he's one who could uh, make a bigger name for for himself certainly another one that comes to mind is uh, Brillen Bolo um, Schalke player also a Basel youth product uh, who was injured for 10 months before coming back uh, last spring and he could be uh, the first substitute on the match sheet. Means if Switzerland needs uh, chases a, a goal, then Mbolo could be the first one on the pitch. Maybe for Zuber, as I said before, it could he could even start for Zuber. And those are the two players who could break out this uh, World Cup. Uh, another one is Dennis Zakaria, 21 years old, uh, central midfielder from uh, Mönchengladbach. Um, growing into a box-to-box type midfielder. So uh, he could even get the start over Berami if Switzerland needs to play more attacking because Berami is really a, a ball-playing midfielder, which is not much of use if you're chasing a goal. So Zakaria, Mbolo will get game time, I'm sure, and Akanji will start over three games, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Those will certainly be the names that we're looking out for. Oliver, before I let you go, um, where can the listeners find you on Twitter and is there anything that you'd like to plug? Generally, I have nothing to plug other than uh, I'm the uh, head researcher for Switzerland, co-head researcher for Switzerland and football manager. So uh, take a look at football manager and play in Switzerland if you want. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter um, at A-U-L-I-T underscore Z or if you look, at, look up my name, Oliver Sessiger. Uh, I love to discuss Swiss football in general. Um, 
and every other type of football as well. Thank you so much for coming on, Oliver. Thanks, Austin. So that'll do it for our Group E preview podcast here on the World Football Index. A big thank you to all four of the experts who came on to take me through all of these countries. Be sure to follow them on social media throughout the World Cup, and be sure to follow us on the World Football Index on social media throughout the World Cup for all the latest from us, as well as to check out all of the other group stage preview podcast that we've done. All that's left for me to say is thank you to our panel. Thank you to you, the listener, for listening, and goodbye.